Hi, it's a pleasure to introduce uh, my former colleague, uh, John Allison, who was instrumental in establishing the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives during his tenure as Cato's president and CEO. He's a fierce defender of economic and personal liberty and the rule of law. John is presently executive in residence at the Wake Forest School of Business, a member of the Cato Institute's Board of Directors and chairman of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives Executive Advisory Council. Before joining Cato, John served as chairman and CEO of BB&T Corporation, growing its assets from 5 billion to more than 150 billion from 1989 to 2008. He's the author of The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure, which made number one on the bestseller list for the Wall Street Journal. He serves on the Board of Visitors for the business schools at Wake Forest, Duke, and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Let me now turn it over to John for his closing remarks. John. Jim, uh, thank you very much. And uh, thanks all of you for joining us. Uh, as a representative of the Cato Board, I, I do wanna thank uh, you for being here. Start with Jim, who really put uh, this meeting together. All of our speakers who've done a great job. Our tech team, and this is uh, far harder to tech <laughs> than a, a typical kind of event, and they've done a super job. Of course, the participants for be here, being here and the Durrell Foundation for providing the financial support to make this possible. I wanna take a very different tack <clears throat> uh, than we've been having it in the conversations today. I'm a traditional commercial banker, and my goal is to give you a broader context of Federal Reserve policy and its, and its impact in terms of dealing with a emergency or at least defined as an emergency situation. Um, you may recall when the uh, coronavirus, COVID-19 first hit, there was a lot of commotion, a lot of confusion, um, and that was natural. The Fed did a great job of providing liquidity and keeping the economy going. Um, but then we started to develop a lot of different information, which unfortunately we haven't objectively acted on. I was on two first class commissions that studied the implications of the uh, coronavirus. Uh, there were a lot of recommendations that came out of those commissions, but there were two kind of fundamental observations. First, the coronavirus, COVID-19, is not very dangerous for people that are under 65 in good health. Now, it's dangerous like the flu is dangerous. It's, you know, or, or driving too fast in a car is dangerous. There's not, there's not, it's not a no risk um, uh, virus, but it's not particularly dangerous for that group. It is very dangerous for people that have pre-existing conditions and in general for people over 65, not because of their age, but because most people over 65 have pre-existing conditions. So it's a very focused kind of virus. And one of our key recommendations was let's focus on that group. Let's focus on that high risk group. And, and in that, by focusing on that group, we can substantially reduce the mortality from this virus. Um, at the same time, people under 65 in good health, let's go to, let them go back to work. And there are lots of economic consequences of not letting them go back to work. And there are lots of medical consequences of not letting people go back to work. People choose not to go 
uh, have their cancer treated. They choose not to have operations uh, in that kind of environment. Well, any event, and very disappointingly, our recommendations were largely ignored. Um, and that's really was about politics. The politics overwhelmed the medicine and, and it overwhelmed the science uh, and it overwhelmed the economics. And unfortunately, <clears throat> part of that uh, ability to do that was the Federal Reserve itself. The Federal Reserve's decisions to provide such high levels of liquidity, instead of maybe getting on board and saying, hey, let's get back to work, <laughs> let's start returning the economic system to normal, they were quite willing to provide lots of liquidity. Now, you can argue there were some good benefits about that, and maybe they didn't have control of the political process, but um, they weren't very helpful in that regard. Um, you know, with that context, I want to talk about the bad news and the good news and relate it actually to monetary uh, policy, as strange as that may be. Of course, the bad news uh, from an economic perspective is we've incurred a massive level of debt, kind of stunning. It's happened quietly, but it's huge. Uh, and our children, grandchildren will spend a lot of time trying to get that debt back under control. It's, it's kind of stunning levels. Economically, we have wiped out thousands, hundreds of thousands of small businesses that will never come back. They will never, ever recover. And that's going to reflect a pretty significant kind of change in the nature of our economy. Um, of course, a lot of the deaths were unnecessary. If we had really focused our resources on older, sicker people or people that had pre-existing conditions, we could have actually had a much lower death level and could probably have created herd immunity by now. Probably, don't know that for certain. Um, and I guess the thing that bothers me the most is the impact on our educational system. We chose to close a lot of our schools down. The evidence is for people under 25, this is not a particularly dangerous disease. For people under 15, it's not a dangerous disease. It's nowhere near as dangerous as the flu is. Nowhere near as dangerous as the flu is. For children in certain age groups, K through three and four, it is difficult to know if the educational experience they've lost will ever be recoverable because there are actually times when people learn. And we've done a lot of damage to the human capital, the economic capital in the United States with that group, particularly lower income families where the parents had to work and the kids supposed to watch on the computer and learn didn't happen, I suspect, I suspect. And, and that is a pretty high cost to play. And unfortunately, our, uh, and I guess not surprisingly, our uh, um, press has been exposed and that they've made this big news. They really haven't talked about the factors I've talked about much. If you've been following the press, they've sensationalized it, dramatized it and made it worse. And the reaction of politicians reacting to the press has done a lot of damage. There is some good news, interestingly enough. Uh, the good news is that uh, it looks like we're on the verge of having a vaccine. We're not certain about that. What's amazing about that is the speed at which the vaccine has been developed and the fact that 
we were willing to get rid of tons of crazy government bureaucracy in order to move forward with this vaccine. Now, there's a tremendous, really important lesson there. And it's a lesson that relates to Fed policy. It's a lesson that relates to what the Federal Reserve does in regards to uh, digital currencies. It says, let markets operate, let people operate, and you'll get much better results much faster. Now, whether any lesson was actually learned or not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the next administration will just put back in all the crazy rules we had before, and it'll still take us zillion years to develop a vaccine. But this appears to have been kind of a breakthrough in using new technology in terms of vaccine development that radically cut this, this, the time it takes to develop a, a vaccine. There's been some other advances that are interesting in uh, certain kinds of businesses like Amazon are giant winners. And probably we skip five years of getting to where we are now. In other words, uh, hopefully small businesses wouldn't have gone away that anywhere near the pace that we're talking about now and they'd had a lot more time to adjust. But we were moving towards an economy where you could buy anything you wanted on Amazon and buy it pretty efficiently. And a lot of people that never dreamed of using Amazon or whatever, Walmart over the internet are using it and cutting costs, increasing competition, improving our economic efficiency. And I think it's non-trivial. Now, it takes a while for the system to adjust, but I think we've had a big boost in productivity over time that came from that kind of change. Um, we've also just had general advances in technology. You know, I'm on a Zoom meeting about every day. <laughs> I, I don't fly to, Cal to New York or California as far as that goes to have board meetings anymore. Now, there's something lost in that, something lost in person. But wow, I think at least half my board meetings could be in Zoom instead of in person. And that's a whopping improvement in uh, cost and technology. And interestingly, interesting learning experience. Something lost, but a lot gained. And there's a whole lot of technological fronts where we've made some advances. Um, what has all that got to do with the, the Federal Reserve? What's well, an interesting lesson here for the Federal Reserve in terms of technological change and its willingness to support technological change. There's also, I think, an opportunity for non-governmental currencies that this has created. And you've heard a lot of conversation about that and a lot of commotion about that. But um, these new technologies and these new methods of delivery make it non-governmental currencies far more competitive. Now, I personally don't predict the Federal Reserve's going away. I don't predict the dollar's going away. But I do think you're going to see a pretty major shift away from the traditional dollar system. Why not, why not just buy everything from Amazon Direct? I mean, what, you know, why, you know, why does it even need to be cleared through the Federal Reserve? I don't know. It, it, it raises very interesting questions from my perspective. A um, couple of last quick thoughts. Um, where do we go from here? Uh, first thing I think we ought to do is kind of, let's assume this vaccine works and we kind of get things back to semi-normal. It's really important to reflect on what lessons we've learned. Uh, what lessons have we learned in terms of the speed of regulatory action? If it matters that the, we were able to get a vaccine through faster, shouldn't we be able to get regulation faster changes through the Federal Reserve? Isn't there a whopping lesson there? Uh, and isn't that, isn't that a perfect analogy? And shouldn't the Fed learn 
from that lesson? And should other government regulation, regulatory agencies learn from those kind of lessons? We need an objective thought about, hey, what did we do wrong? And what were the valuable lessons that came out of this? It's like, unfortunately, a World War II. It's a horrible thing, and yet there were whopping advances in technologies and lots of good things learned in World War II. Fortunately, this is not World War II, but we did have the opportunity for an awful lot of learning. One thing, though, interesting, one thing that I believe is why we need to be learning at what I would call the margin. We need to be thinking about being sure that our basics didn't get changed that the hardcore principles which have made our free society work didn't get changed in this process. And one of these, I think, is fundamentally monetary policy. It is a safe and sound currency, a dependable currency. And I don't think this has changed that. Uh, I think the first step we ought to take in regards to monetary policy is undo as much of this stuff as we can. Uh, that doesn't mean that we have to do the technology side. I mean the core side, the core side of monetary policy. And secondly, I think it's really critically important and interestingly enough, Jim Dorm just wrote an article about this that you should read uh, uh, in, the Cato, uh, in the Cato website we need enforceable rules. I mean, the Fed just kind of played it by ear and did what the heck they wanted to do. That's not the kind of country we want to live in. That's a country where there's no rule of law. That happened with a lot of governors just made up what they wanted to do. In some cases, they kill people trying to do that. In other cases, maybe they did a good job. It's hard to know. But we need enforceable rules that control the Federal Reserve. They actually need to be passed by Congress, in my view. I don't know how you get them to Congress, but not made up by the Fed himself, but made up by Congress. So that we know next time what the Fed can do and what it can't do. So that we have rule of law. And rule of law is essential in a free society. If you don't, you get drift. Yes, the Fed expanded into what it was doing pretty radically during this process maybe justified, not in my view, how far they went. But if they don't take it back, then what about the next time and the next time? And at what stage is the Fed really not controlled? Not controlled by the rule of law, which is what makes free societies work. So uh, a lot to think about. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to this presentation. Thank you for your support for Cato. Um, ultimately, monetary policy is very important. One of the ways countries get in trouble is they debase their currency. And we want a sound monetary policy that supports a country that's based on individual rights and free markets. Thank you again for your time and, and for your support of Cato. Well, just a quick closing remark. I think it's been a good day and the topic of the conference, digital currency, risk or promise. We've looked at some of the risks of a digital currency, but we've also talked about the promise of the new technology and the cryptocurrencies that have been emerging over the last several years. So 
I don't think there's any question that at some point the central bank will introduce its own digital currency, but this will also promote and advance private sector digital currencies as long as the government allows it. And that's what I mentioned in my opening remarks about uh, Alan Greenspan, uh, that you have to leave room for the market to produce and innovate because the market's a much better innovator than any type of government uh, bureaucracy as we know from history. Now I'd like to thank uh, everyone so much for joining us today from your busy schedules. And hopefully next year we'll be able to return to the Hayek Auditorium for the 39th Annual Monetary Conference. I'd also like to thank once again, the George Edward Durrell Foundation for financial support not only for this monetary conference, but they've been helping us over many years uh, to promote sound money and price stability over the long run. I'd also like to thank, especially the Cato staff. There's too many to mention, it's a team effort. And the speakers and the wonderful moderators that we had today for an excellent job. The papers from this year's conference, like past conferences will appear in the spring summer issue of the 2021 Cato Journal, or should I say the beloved Cato Journal, uh, since I've been editing it since I was a child, it seems like. And uh, I wanna wish you a happy Thanksgiving, stay well. And even if you have a virtual Thanksgiving, it's, uh, it should be enjoyable for you and your family. Thanks again, and I hope you can uh, soon in the near future stop by Cato. Good night.